Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, seated in the book-lined office of Rabbi Donald Cashman in the Temple of B'nai Shalom. And we're so delighted to be here. What got us here was a press release about the countdown to Rosh Hashanah. So thank you for having us. Well, thank you for coming. And I thought I'd start because as we've been we're waiting for the mics to get set up. I've been looking around the office walls here. And other than the volumes and volumes of books, there are just fascinating things on the wall. I asked the rabbi, are those pens in that picture? And he said, no, he told me. They are pointers. When we read from the Torah scroll, we don't touch it but rather we follow along with pointers. Those particular pointers are made from uh, wood or precious metals, and uh, that particular uh, grouping is from a museum that uh, Adolf Hitler uh, created in Prague called Museum for an Extinct Race. They were on display uh, here touring the United States in the mid-'80s. I saw them in Miami. And uh, those were were there. And I just love that poster. I spent a lot of time with the Tower Scroll and uh, really wanted it. So acquired that poster and have had it in my office ever since. And each one is unique and ornate in its own way. One has a coral tip. Many are pointed hand, you know, fingers pointing uh-huh. from hands. And... How, what a wonderful statement that this is not an extinct race. Right. <laughs> and that it's now in a rabbi's office. I like that. And then if we just kind of travel around the room, tell me about some of these other things on the wall here. Well, this uh, fabric piece here, uh, first I'll tell you where I, uh, who made it. Okay. It's from a workshop in Jerusalem called Yad Lakashish, uh, Lifeline to the Old. Senior citizens uh, come there during the day and make handicrafts, uh, and they're sold. Uh, they get uh, companionship there. They get a salary there. They get lunch there. And uh, we get to uh, acquire various kinds of handicrafts. This one is based on a passage from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8 giving the seven species of the land of Israel. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, uh, olives, and dates. And it's just exquisite needlework. It's lovely. And so why have you chosen to hang that? Um, A month... Well, we read this passage, one of the times we read this passage is on the Jewish festival of Tubishvat. It's one of the most minor Jewish festivals. And in fact, the only thing we do to celebrate it is eat a lot of fruit. The Jewish mystics in the 16th century or so started to have a ritual banquet, eating certain foods at certain times during it and studying passages of the Bible and other Jewish literature while they ate these fruits. About um, about four, five, six weeks after I met this woman in rabbinical school, I went to a Tubishvat Seder. 
and uh, that kind of did it. We've been married for almost uh, for, for 34 <laughs> years now. Um, so that uh, Tuvishvat Seder is very important to me in that particular passage. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that story. So moving along on the wall here, what have we got next? Well, up at the top there is a, a chart from the uh, Israel Museum uh, showing the development of Hebrew script from its uh, proto-Sinaitic uh, pictograph into into uh, eventually older Hebrew and then the Aramaic letters. What you and I think of generally, most people think of as Hebrew letters are actually Aramaic letters right. as derived from the older Hebrew. And you can also see how the Greek and eventually the Latin or English alphabet uh, is uh, derived from it and then Cyrillic Well, I from had that. never realized it was a pictograph language to start with. Pictographic script. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't realized yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so all the, like the word uh, bait, uh, we say uh, alphabet, right? Alphabet. So uh, an aleph, an uh, it's an ox, and a bet is a house. That's great. Uh-huh. That's great. Uh-huh. And what have you got underneath? Down there? here uh, uh, is uh, something my wife gave me for my birthday one year. It's a passage from uh, the Mishnaic tractate uh, Avot. It says, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to not do anything about it. You can't just sit back and do nothing. You have to do something. So you don't have to complete it, but you have to be in the process. You have to be working through. Now, I love this passage so much that my license plate on my car is the source for that. Avot 221. Oh my gosh. And next to it? Next to it. That's an example of micrography. Uh, In tiny little Hebrew letters, what do you see in the picture? I had not seen the tiny little Hebrew letters until you said that. It looks to be like a man leading a horse with another man on it. It looks to be like an old-fashioned etching. But as soon as you said that, I realized the little tiny lines are actually letters. Yes. And what those letters are is the sixth chapter of the book of Esther, where uh, uh, it ends up with Haman, the bad guy, leading Mordecai, the the good guy, on the king's horse. I like the way you put this in very simple terms. We have the good guy and the bad guy. Oh, isn't that fascinating? And who does that kind of work? Uh, uh, Somebody with, I guess, good vision and uh, doesn't have arthritis yet. Uh, uh, Actually, uh, I'm going to Israel uh, with a, uh, I'm bringing a group in December and January, and we will go to the town of the city of uh, Safed, Tzvat, up north. There's a whole street of people who sell micrography. They do chapters. They do whole books of the Bible. Bible, you know, huge uh, pieces like that. Fascinating. And what is the circular? Uh, That's um, a good question. I don't even remember (laughs) what that is. Uh, Well, it looks like a bouquet of flowers in a circle with Hebrew around it. But um, actually, the top is it's uh, the same text at the top that we have in the uh, the fabric piece. Oh, okay. so that's what that is. And, of course, we have prominently displayed your um, 
do oh, oh got even more probably oh, more pro- over the, that's we my, skipped over two diplomas sure, okay that's my ordination certificate all right and that's my uh, 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 doctorate my honorary doctorate they give it to us uh, after 25 years of uh, serving the Jewish community well I want to walk through your life with you but oh. that's something and we have one more corner and uh-huh. you had mentioned this is the Israel corner right on my eastern wall. Uh, at the top is a uh, 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 a tile. It says, "If I forget your Jerusalem, let my uh, right hand uh, forget its cunning." Uh, that's a tile. Below that is a clock, which uh, is pretty accurate, shaped in the land of Israel, and you can see where the the blue spots are where there's water. I had another clock. It's over here next to you out of olive wood, but it, it, the battery kept running down. And then I found that other, and it was because of the, the way the hands were. I couldn't see. When I got it, I could see that far now. <laughs> now I can't see that far. Uh, there's a, a, a chevron on the, the right there that's got the same passage from Psalms about not forgetting Jerusalem. And on the left, there's a uh, bas-relief of some people at the Western Wall. The uh, central piece is uh, is a fabric piece, a fabric applique by uh, a, a woman who used to be a local artist. She's since moved out of town, Anita Rabinoff-Goldman. We have uh, four other pieces by her in the synagogue. We have uh, a triptych in the hall that are different visions of the Bible because of peace. Because our name is B'nai Shalom, we commissioned her to do uh, three pieces on peace. And we have another piece uh, that was commissioned uh, uh, by a congregant. In it's hard to believe children. she does that with a needle. It's not with a needle. Well, oh. yeah, there's some with a needle. But it's yeah. pieces of fabric laid on others that are on top of each other. And uh, I'm assuming she uses a machine. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. So tell me the name of the temple. Shalom, I think, is what? B'nai Shalom, Children of Peace. Children of Peace. I was missing the first part. And I'd like just to back up to the beginning of your life. How Mm -hmm. did you come to be here? I mean, what was the path that you took? Um, Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Newburgh. Uh, My official biography on the congregational website says that I'm a native of the West Bank of the Hudson. (laughs) Uh, uh, So so, you're a person with a sense of humor. uh, I like to think so. Uh, Not everybody finds everything I say funny, but uh, 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 I started out here. I grew up here, uh, went to college in Boston, rabbinical school. First year was in Jerusalem, then uh, back to New York. But what drew you to this? What I mean, it's a huge commitment. What uh, What was your family like or your upbringing? We were we were uh, I like to say religious reform Jews. A lot of people don't understand because reform tends to be uh, more secular than. Uh, uh, um, than than totally observant, but we were actively involved, and I became more uh, involved uh, in high school through our youth movement, uh, involved on a regional and a national level, and uh, uh, this kind of did it for me. I, uh, I it combined a lot of things for me, and so I went through college as a religion major, and then straight on to rabbinical school. Uh, my first job out of school was in Miami. And I escaped Miami after two years. And I've been, Why do you say escape? It's hot yeah. and humid. 
and I worked in a very large congregation with uh, 1,300 families. That meant uh, 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 60 funerals in two years. That's one every 11 days. Oh, my goodness. So you can't really... And there was one 10-day period with five funerals. Um, because you had a lot of elderly people a lot in your of, con- a, yeah. a lot of people, people but a lot like of elderly. retired. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so... Um, you know, you you try and, and and have some kind of professional detachment, but being around all these sad people takes a toll on you. I can imagine. Uh, uh, so uh, we were uh, we were when this uh, position opened here in Albany. I was uh, very keen to come back to the. Uh, well, the... tell us about your congregation here. Oh, I've been here for uh, thirty three years. Uh, we are the youngest congregation in Albany. Uh, we uh, are one of the smaller ones. Uh, so how many families? I think we count at this point 121, 122 families. At this time of year, it changes. People are looking to affiliate with synagogues for the upcoming uh, Days of Awe, or the High Holy Days, uh, as some people call them. And so people are, are, are coming uh and uh, it's just very, we have some of the nicest people. <laughs> well, it's also a nice size because it sounds like it's small enough everyone would get to know everyone. And well, you know the people who want to get known. Uh, there's some people who we don't see an awful lot of. And, you know, I eventually know who everybody is. So uh, uh, people who come off and say, well, who's that guy over there? I know who he is because that's my job is to know who he is. Uh, but So tell us about your job. I, I mean, it consists of, you say you do a lot of reading of the Torah, and you also obviously handle funerals. We've mm-hmm. heard about that. Mm-hmm. And you run worship services. Mm-hmm. But like, just kind of describe to us what, it, what it's like to be a rabbi. Oh, what does a rabbi do? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Rabbis do everything. Uh, um so uh, as soon as you leave, I'm going to send out a, an email to the congregation telling them of a, a death in the congregation. Uh, that happened over the weekend that I learned about when I came in. Uh, I need to practice the shofar today. The month before uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the one who sounds the shofar is supposed to sound it every weekday. I, I missed yesterday. I don't know how I did that. I was doing uh, some other things. Uh, I'm also going to read through the Rosh Hashanah service uh, because we started using a new prayer book last year, and it's not straight through. It's... Uh, you know, one thing on this page and one thing on the next page, then skip two pages and do that. So everything is marked in my copy. I've marked it up myself, but I need to practice reading it out loud so I don't trip over my tongue. And I know that we turn here and I don't think last year, last year, because it was the first time I was so concerned that I was greatly, uh, I made group darn sure there were no mistakes in my written uh, text there with my directions but it's been a year since I went through that so I need to read it out loud so that's uh, part of the agenda for today uh, I will also be working on uh, a sermon for um, I'm working on Yom Kippur morning this week I have a time I try to uh, do one before the month before Rosh Hashanah, way before, uh, two months before Rosh Hashanah, two in the month 
before Rosh Hashanah and two and a half, and then kind of finish it up when I'm in the fervor and mood of the holiday. It's tough, tough in July to get worked up about a September or October holiday. Yeah, well, it's wonderful you're doing this, and I brought my sheet that you had sent out, this countdown. Uh I mean, I've never had anything like this cross my desk, Uh and we're through some of the days, but I'll just say what some of them are, and you can kind of fill in our listeners. On Friday, August 31st, is Music of the Days of Awe, getting acquainted with the seasonal Tunes that's I can't even read without my glasses, stories and their significance. So tell us about what that is going to be like. What are some of those stories and some of that music? Oh, I'm still trying to get through next week. Uh, <laughs> but I have given some thought to well, what I'm going to do with music. Yeah. There are a couple of melodies that are hundreds of years old, uh, motifs really, that appear in diff- different places within the service. So... Um, During the service itself, I tend not to interrupt and talk too much about the significance of these melodies, the origins of these melodies. Uh, Some believe uh, they're a thousand years old. Um, Some scholarship recently says, well, not quite, maybe 500 years old. Uh, They're major, they're not minor, so that already hints on Central Europe, not Eastern Europe, and how they moved and came over and where they appear. And I'll interject here that the rabbi is also a musician. (laughs) I saw his guitar case in the corner of the room there, so this is like another language that you speak. So I'll do that. I'll I'll review some of the things that we sing constantly during the holidays so people aren't hitting them for the first time on the Days of Awe. I have at least uh, uh, one new melody we're introducing this year. I have a a soloist. Actually, our soloist, it'll be her, her third year. It's a young woman who grew up in our congregation, went to the uh, uh, Heart School of Music, and is now a, a school music teacher. Uh, voice was her instrument. Oh, how uh, wonderful so, that you've been here long enough. You've watched someone grow up and end up as a soloist for your, oh, gosh. It's one of the great privileges. In fact, many of my colleagues here in the uh, capital region have been here 20 or 30 years, and we share this in common with... Uh, Doing uh, uh, doing baby namings and then their bar bat mitzvah and their weddings and naming their children, uh, uh, it's just a wonderful thing to grow up with people and it's a great blessing as a rabbi to be invited in to share people's lives with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. So she'll be. Uh, I, I gave her one new piece I wanted to learn, and it's a piece uh, with solo and congregational response. So I want to teach them the response. And are these songs in what language are they in? Uh, this particular one is in Aramaic. Uh, most of them are in Hebrew, but uh, this particular one is in Aramaic. So the congregation sings in Hebrew or they listen? No, they they will sing in Hebrew. Oh, yeah, they sing in Hebrew. Uh, One of the blessings of our new prayer book is that all the Hebrew prayers are Romanized, transliterated into mm-hmm. English characters, because uh, a lot of people read Hebrew, but they can sing faster than they read Hebrew. 
So uh, it kind of opens the door, and uh, for even for non-Hebrew readers, they really appreciate that we are a singing congregation. Certainly, I've been pushing that for. Uh, now, why? What does that do for your um, sense of God and religion to be able to sing? <sighs> First of all, it, it it makes it more participatory. You know, you're not sitting there reading. You're not sitting there listening to something. You're not sing, uh, listening to somebody read or sing or perform. Though certainly there are pieces that have a higher degree of artistry that we sit there and listen. I think mm-hmm. uh, a well-balanced uh, church or synagogue music program uh, uh, should allow people to sing, but also should have those pieces that, whether it's a soloist or a choir, has worked on that the uh, the person in the pew is not going to be able to master after a couple of hearings. So uh, I think that elevates people being involved. Uh, singing is good because of the breathing and the focus and the uh, of rhythm and all that, you know. Sometimes, uh, you know, I have percussion up in the front. I got a drum and I got two shakers and I got a tambourine. Um, I probably won't use those on the days of all, but uh, uh, for normal uh, sh- Sabbath worship, I will use those. Nice. And it's interesting to me because I know decades ago the Catholic Church stepped back from doing Latin, mm-hmm. you know, and tried to make it more accessible in English, but that you still use the Hebrew. Tell us about why that's important. Well, Hebrew uh, binds us to all other Jews at prayer in time and space. Uh, You know, Jews for 2,000, 3,000 years have prayed in Hebrew, and Jews throughout the world pray in Hebrew. Now, we in a reform synagogue use more English uh, or the vernacular. If you're in a congregation in Argentina, you'll be in Spanish. And if you're in a congregation in, in France, you'll be in French. But uh, uh, we use the vernacular. Uh, we want to understand what we're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, we work on learning Hebrew uh, to understand what those prayers, and, but using certain things uh, that, that we either recite or sing bind us uh, to our ancestors and to each other. Yeah, there's something in language itself that through, through the ages, as even language changes, mm-hmm. if you can get back to the root of it, mm-hmm. um, you can find some truth. So moving along on the list of the countdown, we have on Saturday, September 1st, um, it's a late night penitential service. Tell us a little about that. Slichot uh, is, is that service. Um, there's an old teaching that midnight is a good time to petition God. Why is that? Why is that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's less uh, air traffic. I don't know. <laughs> all, all, only the uh, 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 the airwaves aren't tied up. Um, oh, I understand. There's a wonderful book uh, uh, from a couple of years ago by a, uh, an author named uh, Liss. I can't remember his first name. Called the Coffee Trader. It's about 16th, 17th century Amsterdam. Amsterdam, In Netherlands, yeah. not Amsterdam, New York. Apparently, um, this was when coffee came into Europe. 
And Jews were big on the international coffee trade. Jews were often involved in international business because they had connections all over the place. Uh, And uh, uh, a lot of people would drink coffee and they'd be up all night or they couldn't go to sleep. So they were up praying (laughs) at that point. That's a a different take on... Yeah, and also it's just a time when the daily chores, whatever era and place are done, and uh, you have more solitude for communion, I would think. Sure, sure. It's quiet. The streets are quiet. The kids are quiet. It's you. It's a good time to petition God. Now, we don't do it at midnight. We do it at 9 p.m., but we do it, uh, first of all, with fewer lights in the sanctuary. It's not fully lit. We just have a, a few lights so we can read from our books. I uh, put us in a circle. You know, the first year I have did it, it's been about 20 years. I had no idea how many people are going to show up. Um, and I put about 20 chairs out and we get that usually one year some people came late and they've had to sit over on the side because they came late and I didn't have enough chairs out uh, and we have a special liturgy for that it kind of brings us in uh, we ramp up for the holidays we start with the kickoff we had that kickoff on August 12th which was the first day of the month of the Hebrew month before Rosh Hashanah, and then these various... And that was like a sort of joyous festival. That was a joyous thing. I I thought, oh, it's the first day of the count. It's the first day that we sound the shofar. Uh, I was thinking, me, I was thinking, oh, some kind of penitential moment. They said, oh, no, let's have a carnival. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, Well, that's good, too, to get people in to let them know what we're doing. We had a lot of people, we assume, from the neighborhood or people who drove by and and saw that we were having this carnival. We had a bounce house out front. I mean, I want to bounce off the walls sometimes during the holidays, so I didn't get on the bounce house. Uh, But it was a nice way to kick off the month and these four special uh, Friday nights... uh, before the before the holidays and this uh, late night service. One of the things we do with this service, which I picked up from uh, my colleagues, there's no tradition behind it. For the days of all, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the normal cloth coverings in the sanctuary get changed from their year-round color, whatever that might be, to white. So the curtain, which we have a, like a maroon curtain over the uh, where the Torahs are kept. We take that down. We put up a white one. The Why? Cl- What's the symbolism there? White is a symbol of purity. Okay. White is also in uh, uh, Judaism a uh, color of death. Um, and we'll cover the uh, reading table in white. We'll cut the Torah covers themselves will be changed to white. I wear a white robe. So when when your congregation walks in, they are immediately aware that this is different. Right. The the white is like a, a sign. And... It's white, and part of it is the melodies, because certain melodies, as I mentioned before, are saved for this season. You can just hear, oh... It's the high holidays, as opposed to going in on a festival, you hear certain melodies, or even morning and evening have different melodies. 
So tell us, what is the heart of this Rosh Hashanah? It's the new year, but tell us a little about the history and why it's celebrated. Well, the heart of it is a a day of uh, introspection. Uh, and the whole month really leads up to introspection be, and leading into uh, repentance and atonement. Uh, you ask about the history. Probably the older festival is the one not at Rosh Hashanah, but two weeks later. Rosh Hashanah is at the new moon festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two weeks later at the full moon, there is the festival of Sukkot, the fall harvest festival. Probably in ancient times, the harvest festival was more important. Uh, Just because people were closer to the earth and having to grow food and sure, sure. survive. Uh, you wanted to thank God for your harvest. And in the land of Israel in particular, the rainy season begins about then. It doesn't rain in June, July, August, not that much in September. It kind of starts in late September, maybe, but picks up October through maybe March. You need to petition God for rain at this season, because if it doesn't rain in in the season, uh, the crops won't grow and you'll starve. So you want to give thanks for what you got, and you want to ask for rain. Now, how can you approach your God in a state of sinfulness? Oh, we need to get rid of that sin. So the Day of Atonement is five days before Sukkot. And Rosh Hashanah, the new year, is uh, ten days before that at at the new moon. So it leads us up to that harvest festival. Now, uh, these days, uh, here in, uh, in America, where we're urban people, uh, we feel Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We don't feel Sukkot so much. Now, I'm a gardener, so... Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, you do. I do. My, my issue now is there's been too much rain. My tomatoes are saying, no more rain. Yeah, yeah. their leaves are turning yellow, they? They're turning they? yellow, yeah. yes. Arts, too. Well, our half an hour has gone really fast, but I do not want to leave without telling people what is on the desk before me. The rabbi has collected, I think from around the world, yes, ram's horns. And I'm hoping he will blow some of them for us and tell us a little about the tradition there. I uh, Actually, they're not too much from around the world. I have uh, one... To where's the third one? Where did I did I take it home, or is it sitting around here somewhere? Did I hide it? I don't know. Uh, uh, that I got in Jerusalem, and I have three, but I only see two here that I got in Marrakesh. I was in uh, Morocco four years ago, and we spent uh, the Sabbath in the area where the Jews live now, and went to a synagogue in that area. Uh, the next day was Sunday. We were able to go into the, the Mela, the, the old part of the city where the Jews used to live, where the old synagogue was, which is actually guarded by by the, the government. I don't know if it was, uh, was a, a soldier or the national police. The king of Morocco loves his Jews. And the place, every place we went, every hotel we stayed at was filled with Israelis. 
uh, whose origins were from Morocco. A lot of Jews from Morocco. Before that, they'd gone to Turkey, but the uh, Turkish government had become less than uh, friendly with Israel by this point. So they were all going to Morocco. Uh, Our tour guide told us that there would probably be somebody selling uh, chauffeurs there in the synagogue. So it was a small group. There were 17 of us. I guess there were 10, 10 men. And uh, after whatever the tour or lecture we got, we were told they're out on the table there. Well, being a, 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 a chauffeur blower, I uh, said, oh, I want to get one. So, you know, I tried them all out and I found one that w- was great. And when the other guys there, they're diddling around there. So I picked up two more. Um, how did you learn how to, to blow the chauffeur? How did how do you learn that? Well, I was a French horn player when I was in, uh, 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 a little kid from the time I was 8 to 18. So I've got so that the helps. So yeah. that helps, right. And Marrakesh, who would have thought? But most of these are sort of... I, what's the word I'm looking for? They swirl like you think of a ram's horn, but there's one that looks like you think of like a unicorn horn. Uh-huh, what, uh-huh. what is what is with this one? Uh-huh. What's from a unicorn? Sure, <laughs> uh, um, it's a straight shot with um, just spirals spirals on, on the bottom. Yeah, well, the answer is. Um, I don't know if any of the shapes are natural. You boil them for four to six hours, and they get soft, oh, and you shape them. Oh. Or the manufacturer does. Uh, okay. uh, you know, I don't do that. I bought them all in this way. I haven't uh, played with them. I didn't understand that. I thought it was like you know people have in their homes like deer horns, or yeah, yeah. you know. And I thought they just that was their shape, but they're turned. Well, and I shaped. don't know about antlers. I just know about yeah. horns. Uh, uh, so the one that you're looking at, uh, I walked into a street on the main shopping uh, uh, drag of Jerusalem, and she had a case full of these. I'd never seen a horn like this. This is probably oh four or six years ago. And so, and I, it's a yard long. It's ebony colored. Can I touch it? Sure, sure. It's sure. smooth to the touch, and it's just magnificent looking. Uh-huh. Uh, it doesn't sound all that good, and doesn't play so easily either. But I'll I'll toot it for you. Uh, it. Uh, I don't know if it's from an ibex or an oryx. Uh, I'm no animal expert. I just know the horns. You know, play the horns. Uh, but it's straight, and there aren't uh, ones like that. So I asked the lady behind the counter, you know, where did you get this? Who makes it? She says, my son does them. And she points to the back of the store, and there's this other guy standing there. Okay. <laughs> but so I had to get one. Uh, I don't use it in the synagogue. Uh, but let's see what I can do with it tonight, this morning. Are you unusual among rabbis, or do they all know how to do this? Um, uh, they didn't all play the French horn in no, high school? No. <laughs> um, I actually, at a workshop for rabbinic students, when I was a rabbinic student, taught the other ones how to do it. Uh, so um, I don't know. You know, most people farm that out, I think. Yeah. Um, I like to do it. Um uh, you know, maybe I should uh, train other people, get other people to do it. Uh, well, I think it's neat. It's like you're literally calling people to worship. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now I don't know how this is going to work with the microphone. You want me to move back from it? Okay. Well, let's not hit that. See, that doesn't do much. Now let me uh, try. I have this. Uh, 
So there are different rhythms that you use? Well, there are three three to four calls. Okay. There's a tequila, which is a straight blast. I count them uh, for three seconds. One, two, three. That's a tequila. A shavarim is three. Da, da, da. A turua is three times three, nine. Da, 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 da. And a tequila gedola I mean, just means a long tequila. The literature says a tequila, no matter how long it is, is just one tequila. So it became uh, customary, and it became a, it was a late custom uh, uh, that you hold it as long as you can. Uh, a couple of years ago, I I was doing a full minute, but I stopped working on that because uh, uh, it seemed like it was no longer for the glory of God. It was for the glory of Don. And <laughs> it didn't seem like it was in, in keeping with the mood of the holiday of, yeah. of humility. So yeah. I, I don't aim for that anymore. Uh, uh, you know, 20, 30 seconds, that's fine. It gets the point across. This particular one is uh, really nice. I call it my sopranino because uh, it's very, very high. was wonderful. So how did this tradition start? Was it because... Oh. Go ahead. Oh, it's a very old tradition. The, uh, the Torah talks about uh, it shall be a day of blowing the horn. So, you know, this literature from 2,500 or more years ago says this is what you do on the festival. Uh, this was um, uh, sounded in times of uh, warning or of praise, or you find it also in, in the Psalms, uh, references to, to blowing the shofar uh, at, the, at the new moon. This is how they would proclaim it. Uh, later on, how did they proclaim religious celebrations? Bells. Jews didn't use bells. Other people used bells. Yeah. But they used whatever would spread over a wide distance of time. Like we have firehouse whistles today. Right, sure, yeah. sure. Now, this one, this is my favorite, and this is the one I will use for, uh, for the days of awe. I put this on my honeymoon. Oh, uh, how wonderful. The, Where was your honeymoon? It was in Jerusalem. This was in 1984. And I got it at the same store I got that other one in 1975 on my first trip to Israel. Uh, so this one I like uh, very much. Goosebumps. And I saved this one for last. This is the Marrakesh one. Um, the mouthpiece is cut in such a way. Now, on the, the one on the left there on the table, mm-hmm. on my left, your right, I could get tunes out of. This one, not only can I get tunes, it's incredible. Uh, I used it uh, one year. I can get a glissando of it. Uh, uh, it's Gershwin. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, literally, we will close our conversation. I don't know if it's appropriate to clap. Uh, That was great. Great. That was great. Wow. 
Wow. Well, what a life you lead. Well, yeah, it's fun. It's No, it's you've put together so many things all into service of God. I mean, it's just like everything flows into one channel. It's just remarkable. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, wanting to talk to me. Yeah, well, you were hard to get.